listeners, readers, welcome to the Foxed page where we dive deep into the very best books. You'll come away with a better understanding of the text at hand, all while learning to read everything a little better. Those of you who are watching on the YouTube channel can see that I'm coming to you um, from, from quite a verdant spot here in my office. I actually went around and gathered a bunch of houseplants. I'm hoping to transform this, um, this corner of the Fox Page studio into a place that's a little less familiar uh, to the average American. That place is, in fact, the setting of the Covenant of Water. So this gigantic book by Abraham Verghese is one that people have, Verghese? Verghese? I say Verghese, but that's probably some sort of weird Italian um, wannabe kind of um, pronunciation. But uh, Abraham Verghese has written this incredible giganto book that lots and lots of you are reading. I've been wanting to do this seminar for a while and finally was forced to sit down to do it today because I had a friend, a longtime friend, um, I'm doing this on a Thursday morning. I saw her on a Wednesday evening. She had started the Covenant of Water on Sunday night and in three days was like, I don't know, three quarters of the way done and just said that she absolutely could not do anything else. As soon as she started it, she was absolutely captivated and uh, that she'd just been camping out on the couch at her house and no one could drag her away from this book. So it's time to uh, really dig in to a slight analysis of the Covenant of Water. So this is what we call um, at the Fox page an enriched read, which is simply that you do not have to have read the book before. Um, it, this might be something that actually would be good to listen toward the beginning of your odyssey, or if you are considering reading the book and haven't dove, haven't dived, haven't dove in yet, because what I'm going to do today is talk about some of the very best attributes of the novel, but I'm going to, this is all within the first sort of 14 pages. I'm only delving into the very, very beginning to give you a sense of, of how you might approach this book, how you might get the very most out of it um, without any kind of spoilers or any kind of real plot points. We're going to just kind of start with the start here, which is that um, the scope of this book is undeniable. First of all, um, you know, all you have to do is see this sucker on the uh, on the shelf and understand that we are really in for serious transportation through uh, geography, you know, around the world, through time, through space, through families, into an entirely different realm. So um, Abraham Ver Verghese, Verghese, um, he actually is, I think, geographically very close to me right now. I am near Palo Alto. I believe he is in Palo Alto. I think he's associated with Stanford. I have done very little research uh, on him or on the book. This is all just a purely kind of very uh, new criticism version of analysis here because I'm really just looking at the text, not looking at the life of the author. I'm very firmly sort of looking at this as a book that is written for an English-speaking audience. But not only is the book, you know, hefty, the heft gives us a sense of its scope, but even um, the, the, the cover art of this book, I really love the palette of it. And I love, um, you know, th this sort of emphasis on the natural land and this idea of of a, um, a somewhat sort of, um, I don't know if we call this figurative, it's, 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 uh, it's actually, I think, quite impressionistic. 
I have no idea what I'm talking about. I am not an art major person, but I'm looking at this and I'm definitely getting a sense of place. There is also, of course, this small female figure in the corner here, but we are getting um, a, a sense of, of a, a land, a landscape that is going to be very important, uh, not only for the parts of India where the book is set, but also elsewhere in the globe, Scotland, a few other locales that, uh, that the author really does bring to life. See how I said the author there instead of trying to parse whether it's Verghese or Verghese. So we're going to now open the book. I'm here in and amongst my leaves and plants trying to open this book without, um, without knocking anything over. And we come to a map. Apparently, according to one of my sons, the one who likes to read fantasy uh, fiction, or at least did when he had back when he had time in his youth, um, there apparently always is a map in a fantasy book. And I liked this as a concept because, uh, you know, obviously if you're creating a, an entirely different world that no one is familiar with, like the, wor the world in, um, you know, The Lord of the Rings, or I don't know any other real fantasy titles, maybe the Warriors series with those cats, those guys probably also had a map. Uh, but here we have a map of a part, the part of India that uh, the author is particularly concerned with. We also, of course, in the smaller inset, have a, you know a larger map. Well, it's a smaller map, but it shows us the larger scope. Which here we have India and we have the coast. And so you have a sense right from the beginning that the author is trying to share with us a certain geography, and I would argue that he does an absolutely amazing job doing that. The other way that we understand that the scope of this book is going to be large um, is these really beautiful illustrations all throughout. So um, we have this illustration here in the very beginning under part one of, of a house with a, uh, a, I think it's a thatched roof is what we would call it. Um, it's not like a thatched English cottage roof though, um, as you might imagine. It is, um, we have palm trees, we have other trees, we have a water line, we have sort of a beach, and we have a low, uh, long house that uh, has this beautiful thatched roof. Um, apparently, all of these illustrations were done by the author's brother, and um, I loved that because this really is very much a family saga. And uh, so it's really, it's very touching, in fact, to have one member of the author's family drawing these uh, these excellent illustrations. They're never intrusive. They're not sort of, um, they aren't going to sort of rob you of your own vision of this novel. In fact, I only found them sort of subtle and additive and, and really very lovely. Then, um, speaking of the scope and the sort of heft of this novel, we get to this very first page here, page three, chapter one, always. And underneath that, we have a subtitle, 1900 Travancore, South India. So I love, um, I love a good title. I, I tend, I'm guilty of sort of skipping over them, which is really weird and, and something I've certainly sort of trained myself out of. But I always do love a, a timestamp, if, if we can call it that. Uh, and I love a, a geographical location. So we've got all three of those things here. One of the things that the author does so well throughout this entire novel is to really do some good um, hand-holding that is not patronizing. So when you have a book that is this large, you really do have to um, you know, understand that it may take your reader longer than it seems to be taking that friend of mine to read this book. 
And because of that, you're going to need to provide, uh, you know, a certain amount of sort of footing for the reader. And this is a very effective, very simple, uh, very straightforward and unobtrusive way to do that. So I like the fact that we have the year. I like the fact that we have the geographical location. It also, um, you know, says to us that perhaps we are going to be shifting in time and shifting in location. So if it were all going to be taking place in Travancore, South India, we wouldn't need to, to be quite so upfront about that. So whether or not this is registering for you, it does kind of um, tip the hand here a bit in the sense that we know that, um, or we don't know, but we might imagine, and in fact, this is the case, that, that you know, not too many chapters later, we are going to be in Scotland in a different era in a different year. So the straightforward feel of this is actually very, um, it's very pleasing to me. Sometimes that kind of straightforward signposting can feel a little patronizing, but it absolutely does not. And part of the reason why it doesn't in this case is because in fact, this is such a giant book that we're going to need um, a little handholding here and there. Okay, uh, I wanna dive in just to the very beginning those of you who have been uh, either with me in the bookstore for the seminars or have listened to the Fox Page podcast know uh, that I really put a lot of stock in the very first sentence of a book. So we're going to kick it off here with this first uh, two very slight paragraphs. She is 12 years old and she will be married in the morning. Mother and daughter lie on the mat, their wet cheeks glued together. The saddest day of a girl's life is the day of her wedding, her mother says. After that, God willing, it gets better. It's such a genius opening for so many reasons. That first sentence, which it's really lovely that it ends at the end of the line, that kind of typesetting is, is totally sort of happenstance, but I really love it when it works like that. So you have this gorgeous kind of outsized, this larger uh, capital S, and we have she is 12 years old, and she will be married in the morning. So, it, you know, to, to most, um, you know, readers in 2023, the notion of a girl being married at 12 is, uh, you know, it's a bit of a shocker. So when we have this opening here, um, it, and it's so kind of stripped and bare and just the facts, and it's very, um, on some level, it's very neutral, but to, to many of us, it's also sort of shocking. She is 12 years old, and she will be, she will be married in the morning. I love the um, the uh, alliteration of married in the morning. I'm generally not a huge fan of alliteration, but in this case, I really love um, the, the sort of the resonance of it and uh, the way that it really makes this very first, it, you know, it's a two clause sentence. It really puts a lot of weight on the second part of the sentence, on the second clause. And it's really just, um, it, it, it's a beautiful way to put emphasis. There's also, um, that is a, what is that, morning? It's a um, bilabial nasal. Not only do we have this first sentence that is really uh, so powerful, but then immediately we are moving um, right along quickly to an even more complex concept, which is that this mother and daughter are, are grieving together, essentially. There's a lot of intimacy between the two of them and the fact that the author is inviting us to be part of that intimacy right away is such a testament to the kind of um, intimacy that we will have throughout the novel. It's very bold to begin, um, you know, a, a novel of this size with what is really a very intense 
and a very intimate domestic scene. But I really love the idea um, of, of this as feeling sort of matrilineal, at least at the beginning here. The idea too that this is a, um, you know, it, it's sad enough that both of them are crying is, is really significant. And then the fact that we, so we, we know by the second sentence, which is mother and daughter lie on the mat, their wet cheeks glued together. That is sad. But then we go even one step further into sort of the tragic territory here. The saddest day of a girl's life is the day of her wedding. So you really know from the very, very start that you're going to be treated to, I don't even know how many pages this is. I'm going to take a look right now. Um, 715 pages of intimacy and of intensity and of some pretty decent tragedy. But lest we despair at the end of the, what is this, the third sentence, we have the mother saying, and after that, God willing, it gets better. So you do have this idea of hope at the beginning. It's like the perfect encapsulation of what we are going to see play out through the novel. There's intimacy, there is intensity, there is tragedy, and there is hope. So it's this beautiful thing in these brief three initial sentences that really prepare us well for what we are going to get. We even have the, um, the God willing part in there that, that's kind of cueing us in to the fact that religion is going to, um, you know, be, be a big part of the book. And in fact, that was something that surprised me. And we're going to get to one of the aspects that I like the most of the novel, which is simply the idea that I felt like I was learning so much. And a, a lot of what I was learning, in fact, had to do um, with the colonization of India, but also with the religious state in India. So, and lastly, the last thing I will say about the scope of the novel is that this does in some ways read like a realist novel. So the realist novel in the 19th century, think of Madame Bovary, uh, think of uh, Mark Twain, think of um, John Steinbeck. Those are these sort of realist novels that really wanted to, the sort of um, idea behind realism was to capture um, a, a, an entire world. So after the 18th century, when we had more focus on, you know, sort of enlightenment ideas, the 19th century decided that we needed to get a little more pedestrian, a little more proletariat, and really focused on the middle class and this idea of really showing what everyday life looks like kind of for the common man. Of course, um, man there is not a, uh, not a mistake. It's really lots of times very male focused, which is why it is lovely that we have this beginning with this matrilineal and matriarchal moment. But I do think you can think of this a little bit in the vein of those realist novels whose, whose agenda was not to be particularly experimental in terms of the prose, but was really to just really indulge the reader in a very, very rich and a very uh, evocative and a very, um, you know, full description of a, of a people and of a family and of a place. Um, and I think you can even say that there are elements of this novel that they're not, they're, it's not magic realism. I don't think we can go that far because we don't, magic realism is, is simply a, a novel where things that are spectacular and sort of not usually possible in nature are happening 
um, you know, in, in a novel as if they were totally normal things. So you think of A Hundred Years of Solitude when I think that's the one. It's a book by um, Garcia Marquez, but they're, they're dragging a, a magnet through the town and it's pulling all of the nails out of the, of the houses and pulling all of the tractor axles and everything is kind of, you know, clumping onto this magnet um, as if that were something that were possible and totally normal. So you, you have this kind of, um, you know, supernatural things that are happening that, that are described as if they were realistic. So we don't have exactly that, but I'm thinking a little bit here about the elephant at the very beginning of this book, who is is this very, um, it, it, you know, this may be entirely realistic, but you do get this sense of, of um, you know, un, very unusual things as being described uh, as if they were, um, you know, sort of things that happen all the time. So it is no mistake, actually, that, that this sort of magic realism is um, the birthplace of it was in the Amazon, in Colombia, a place where nature is really offering up a lot of very spectacular things, you know, vines that can grow overnight and, um, you know, swamps that can swallow up entire towns. I mean, I don't know if those things are exactly true, but it's it's that sort of, um, it's, it's a geography that suggests that sort of thing. It's incredibly fecund and it's incredibly um, resilient and, and, you know, entire civilizations are sort of swallowed up. I mean... Again, that is not entirely true, but it's it's you have a sense of of, of sort of very un, un uh, or supernatural, not supernatural as in poltergeist, but like you know nature really kind of on steroids. And I think in some level you have a, a similar feel in terms of a um, a geography that is very rich and a geography where nature is is very much a part of of the household. You know where you have elephants whose trunks are um, you know unfurling into bedrooms, that sort of thing. It's not super surprising that I was really focused a bit on the language that is uh, that is so deftly incorporated into the text of this book. So um, right from the beginning, it, it, we have we feel we have a sense that we are in very very capable hands. Not only because of things like that signposting that I was mentioning before, where we have the um, you know the year and the geographical location and the map, and we have a lot of sort of, um, you know, good sort of solid guiding to help us understand what's happening. But we also have a bunch of different ways in which the author is helping us understand uh, that these people are speaking a different language. And he has this really incredible ability to both um, make it sort of, you know, we feel as if it, it's not quite a story that's happening in English, that we're, we're getting a flavor of what the language is all throughout the novel, um, but, but in a way that is not patronizing and it is not too clumsy and it's just very... It's very beautifully done, this incorporation of language. I would argue this is kind of a masterclass in, in how to incorporate a language that is probably not familiar uh, to most of the readers. So right on the first page, page three here, we have the um, sort of this nice introduction. And this is one of the ways in which Verghese, Ver, Verghese um, uses the language and helps the reader to understand. A brain fever bird calls out, Kajekatha, Kajekatha, which way is east? Which way is east? 
So one of the important things that you can't tell from my butchering of the language there is that the the um, the words that are not in English are italicized. So you have this, um, it's a very clear demarcation and it's very helpful. Again, it's sort of, there's a bit of hand-holding happening here, but it's also, um, you know, the word is, is it's difficult enough to decipher here. Um, you know, we've got three Ks, we've got a ZH together. Uh, we, we have a lot of um, sort of unfamiliar to English readers, um, unfamiliar uh, spelling. But what he does so beautifully is he italicizes it and then italicizes what we can assume is the translation. So we have here, um, the first part of the sentence is, uh, you know, in Roman type, which is just non-italics. A brain fever bird calls out, colon, and then the rest of these sentences are in italics. Kajekatha, kajekatha, which way is east? Which way is east? And it's so artful because he has the doubling of kajekatha. I have no idea if I'm saying that correctly, but bear with me. Um, and then he has the doubling too of that second of the translation, essentially, of that. It's really beautiful too that he's beginning with a bird. This is the same thing as the elephant point that I was making just a second ago. Um, there is a sense of, of the birds as being able to communicate. Um, there's, there's a real sense of, of um, you know, the, the inhabitants of this world as melding very um, sort of seamlessly and easily into the landscape. So, but it's beautiful because we have uh, these italicized, um, you know, phrases, this, this repetition of the word, and then the repetition of the translation. If, if he hadn't doubled them, I'm not sure it would have been so, so clear what he is doing with these italics. This is also, what is this, the fourth paragraph? Uh, no, the third paragraph of the novel. So we also, right from the start, we're going to understand that when things are italicized, they are some sort of, um, you know, it's usually not a place name. It is usually a word that is being, um, that will be translated in some way for us. It's, it's, a, it's a simple sort of vocabulary word in the language that is not English that will then be translated in some way. It's just helpful. It's a little clue that like, okay, don't freak out. You're gonna get a translation here. So, but you also have a couple of other ways he does it. And if he always did it the same way, it would be kind of a bummer. It would be a little, I think a little bit more pedantic and a little more didactic and just a little more kind of, I don't know, annoying. But at the bottom of this very first page, we have another instance of a different way that he does this. On the front veranda, her father's ornate charu casera, or lounging chair, sits forlorn and empty. First of all, again, we have the italicized um, words, those, those words for lounging chair. I love how um, he's, he's saying here very, you know, sort of upfront, he has the, 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 the words that are italicized, charu casera, or lounging chair. So in this case, there's a comma and then or and the definition. So it's a very, very um, sort of straightforward, um, almost sort of um, school-like way to translate something. But it's also kind of unobtrusive and it's the second time we are seeing this kind of translating effort. And it's just beautifully done. It's, it's subtle and it's straightforward and he's not trying to come up with some sort of crazy context clues. Instead, he is in fact just translating this thing for us, which is excellent. The other thing that is so strong about this, and he does it all throughout, is um, the way that this is very important description that is happening here. We're not, this is not just like 
I had a writing teacher who called it the um, architectural design style of writing, which is where you just kind of like list a whole bunch of things, which actually I often like. I like that. Like if you list a bunch of things of an interior of a home, I am reading with great attention and I am really uh, enjoying the way that that is formulating a, um, you know, a vision in my mind and an impression of the person and their house and their family. In this case, it is not so much that just listing of things. It is, in fact, an object that's extremely important. So we are, um, we're being introduced to a word and to a concept, which is this lounging chair, but it's also so significant because it sits empty and it was her father's chair. We're, we're beginning with the mother, with this very intimate, very intense, um, you know, last night of their lives together. And then we move very quickly at the end of that very first page to the idea that the father is absent. Um, we don't know yet if he has died or if he is gone, um, but this idea of that chair sitting forlorn and empty is so beautiful. So um, Verghese, Verghese is not, uh, he's just not wasting any uh, details here. Every single detail is working really hard, which is saying a lot because there are a lot of details in these 750 pages, 15 pages. So um, I want to look at another way in which he does this amazing job of translating this language for us. Page four, the very next page, we have a little snippet of dialogue. Mole, her father's only brother, had said the previous day to her surprise, of late he wasn't in the habit of using the endearment Mole, daughter, with her. So this is so beautifully done. Um, he, our author here, is using my very favorite punctuation mark, which is the M dash. You know, now that we are one page in and we have had uh, these two different ways that he is going to translate for us, either with italicized words followed by their English translation, um, or by uh, you know simply naming something, having the, the word for the chair and then saying lounging chair, or he's going to do it this way, um, which he's gonna make us work a little harder because the word is italicized, it says mole, and we don't know what that means and we don't know who he's addressing. So it's sort of like we have to kind of you know trust that in fact uh, he's going to hold our hands a little longer. And then her father's only brother had said the previous day to her surprise, of late, he wasn't in the habit of using the endearment mole, daughter, with her. So daughter here is set off with M dashes. So you have mole dash, daughter dash, with her. And it's really well done um, because, again, we have a, a different way. We're not getting tired. We're not feeling like we're reading some sort of language primer. Um, in, in fact, we are very appreciative of, of the, the variety with which he is introducing these words. In this case, it's also very important because that word is doing so much work. It is a term of endearment. It's a term for daughter, but it is being used by her uncle. So, and it's also a term that he has stopped using of late, presumably because she has gotten engaged and is about to go and get married. Um, so, so there's this real sense of, of that one term being used again after some amount of time, you know, that it had not been used as, as really being very significant and uh, really deserving this kind of attention that it is getting um, through this translation. That's the other thing about the translation is we're not having, you know, every other word translated. These are words that are all very significant. So you don't ever feel like you're kind of, um, you know, wasting your time. So if we go right across the page here on page seven, the marriage broker from Ronnie paces up and down in the courtyard, damp spots at the armpits of his juba connect over his chest. 
So again, with these articles of clothing, we're not getting an exact translation. We're, it's, we're not really in need of that because we know that she has this white blouse and then these other two articles of clothing and that the juba that the, that the marriage broker is wearing must be some sort of tunicky shirt type of thing because of these armpit sweat stains. This is not, um, we're not just having kind of a random uh, description of the juba. In fact, it's really very well done because it's telling us everything about this poor marriage broker and it's really ratcheting up the tension. I mean, you know when the marriage broker is starting to freak out that, you know, and is sweating through his juba, um, that, that really things are, that the tension is ratcheting. So lastly, before we move on from the incredibly deft way uh, in which language is used, I want to um, get to a, a passage on page 12 that I think is incredibly important. I, I was debating whether or not I would begin with this, but I like the fact that um, that the author did not in fact begin with this. So I'm gonna leave it in place. I'm doing these things chronologically. And the reason I am looking at them in chronological order is because I do think that, that this is very purposeful in the sense that we have been fed a few of these words which is a very natural way to learn a language, which is simply um, you know, to have it incorporated into your daily life. We're introduced to it slowly. And then on page 12, we have this beautiful description. I mean, in fact, if you have been listening, you have been noticing that I have not named the language yet. Um, and that is because I wasn't even actually sure what it was. And I was really worried about saying the wrong language. I, I didn't want to make an assumption. And the reader, I think, has not made an assumption. And the author very, uh, very generously on page 12 is helping us understand. But I also think it does make us realize that, you know, it, it, there's so, so, so many languages out there. Americans are so deficient. I mean, people don't even learn French or German or Italian anymore. It's like, you know, they're just very, very few languages that, that Americans will sort of bother to learn. And the fact that we don't really even know what this language is and we're learning words here and there. And then uh, on page 12, he hits us with this awesome description of the language. I think it really uh, is very powerful because, you know, if you're a careful reader, you have been wondering, potentially, what language it is that they are speaking, and um, this is just an absolutely beautiful description of it. The home of the young bride and her widower groom lies in Travancore at the southern tip of India, sandwiched between the Arabian Sea and the Western Ghats, that long mountainous range that runs parallel to the western coast. The land is shaped by water and its people united by a common language, Malayalam. So again, apologies for my pronunciation, but it is such a beautiful way. I mean, I also, this is sort of one third of the way through a paragraph. That's the beginning of the paragraph and I'm, I'm reading about a third of the way through, but I love the way that so much energy and so much momentum is built toward the name of this language. So I'm gonna reread just that last sentence. The land is shaped by water and its people united by a common language, Malayalam. It's so beautiful. It says a common language, colon, Malayalam. 
So it, it's, it's like a colon in that case is acting as an equal sign. And it's this really beautiful sense of, of the fact that, that, that languages, in fact, do unite people and languages are the way that people can, uh, you know, sort of coexist. Then he has this excellent passage a little further down. It is a child's fantasy world of rivulets and canals, of latticework, of lakes and lagoons, a maze of backwaters and bottle green lotus ponds, a vast circulatory system, because, as her father used to say, all water is connected. It spawned a people, Malayalis, as mobile as the liquid medium around them, their gestures fluid, their hair flowing, ready to pour out laughter as they float from this relative's house to that one's, pulsing and roaming like blood corpuscles in a vasculature, propelled by the great beating heart of the monsoon. What a beautiful passage. I mean, it's just beautiful. There's a little bit of a nod there um, to the doctor that um, that Verghese is, which is incredible. I mean, the guy, I think he's like a medical professor at Stanford, but, you know, he just in his spare time, he just writes books like Cutting for Stone and The Covenant of Water. Um, but, but, and in fact, this, it's excellent that I just said The Covenant of Water because this book is, a, you know, there's a lot, a lot, a lot of emphasis on water and on the importance of water. And here he is talking about the monsoon, you know, the kind of the watery season and these storms as um, as really the beating heart of these people and that, and that it is water, in fact, that unites them. So this idea of Malayalis and um, Malayalam as their language, I wish I knew the etymology. Maybe I'll look that up for you. Um, wouldn't it be cool if it had to do with water? That would be so cool. But all of that is to say that we have, um, you know, this really excellent way that he is introducing us to this language, which in turn is really helping us understand and become more familiar with a, a landscape and a group of people and a time in history that we're all very, very, um, you know, it's very different from our lives uh, here, presumably in the United States in 2023. And there are times, too, where we have really beautiful descriptions of place, but, but they're never gratuitous. They're always sort of moving things forward. Out from the canals now onto a carpet of lotus and lilies so thick she could walk across it. So I love this. This is a fragment. It's um, at the beginning of the second chapter. It begins a paragraph, in fact. So this idea of fragments that we see throughout the novel are really um, well chosen, I think, and well deployed because they give you a sense of what she is seeing and what she is taking in, which is by definition fragmentary. You know, she's just seeing these things as the boat is moving by. Everything is new. And it's so magical because as she is being introduced to these places, as she is making her way out into the world, this, this kind of new world for her, the reader is also being introduced to what also is a new world for the reader. It's this very cool thing where you have this omniscient narrator who's very flexible and can pull the camera back and give us a very wide vista and then also can align us so well with this um, young girl with this 12-year-old bride who is, is seeing things for the first time and describing them in ways that are really um, beautiful and compelling. Impulsively, she picks one blossom, grabbing the stem anchored deep down. It comes free with a splash, a pink jewel, a miracle, that something so beautiful can emerge from water so murky. So this is also another example of, of symbolism here. So she's pulling, I mean, this is a very 
you could argue that it's a bit heavy handed, this idea of, of pulling something beautiful from murky water. Uh, you know, you could argue that that's a bit trite, but it's in, you know, in and in, in and amongst so many beautiful descriptions and it sort of flows Look at these watery metaphors I'm using. It flows so well, you could argue that it's a little trite, but it is not gratuitous in the sense that, um, you know, this is our 12-year-old our protagonist who is heading into murky waters, and yet she has the kind of spirit to reach down and pull this thing out. Um, and this idea of this pink, this beautiful pink jewel, a miracle, that something so beautiful can emerge from water so murky. It's giving us this real sense of hope. I mean, we are only here on page six and um, things are not looking great for our young bride. We know that she's going to have a lot of difficulties. So you have this kind of inherent sense of hope that is, I think, um, very important to the reader. It's just very beautiful the way that the, the author is aligning us with this young girl, not only in terms of what she is seeing, but in terms of like we're getting a little bit of her character development. You know, she's someone who's not afraid to reach over and to yank this flower out from the murky water. So we're learning enormous amount about her, all the while learning about uh, the environment and getting these very subtle cues from the natural world about um, whether or not we should have hope for this young girl. So this inclusion of the foliage and of the people, this, this absolutely beautiful uh, uh, choice of detail is so vivid in terms of this sense of place. So much of the sense of place has to do with descriptions of the landscape, but also we have these really beautiful inclusions of people, both um, people who are somewhat involved in the, in the narration, but also people who we will only see once, but who give us a real sense of, of uh, um, you, you know, the sort of communities that we are dipping into and out of. On the banks of the lagoon, four coconut trees grow sideways, skimming the water as if to preen at their reflections before straightening to the heavens. So this kind of um, description too, there's lots of figurative language. In this case, the idea of these palm trees preening, that's, that's a really, um, it's personification. They're preening, you know, as if they were birds or as if they were people. You're, you're giving them sort of some sort of sentience. Uh, but, and this idea of them rising up toward the heavens has this kind of uh, religious thing that's tying all of these things into the landscape, meaning tying in all of these different elements that, uh, that the author is presenting, like nature and like this kind of Christian overlay that we are seeing um, th that's really fairly important toward the beginning of the novel. In addition to this amazing use of language and then also uh, this really vivid sense of place that we get uh, from Verghese, Verghese uh, he also does this really amazing thing with history and I want to just dip into this very quickly. So um, we know from the very very beginning of the book that this is a story that is very intimate and it's very intense and it's very much about a family but we also have these excellent kind of excursions into history that are so well incorporated, but also just so satisfying. So much of the history that we um, are coming across has to do, in the beginning, in the very beginning of the book, has to do with religion. So um, he says the following. This is one of the seven and a half churches founded by St. Thomas after his arrival. So St. Thomas, you're like, wait, okay, St. Thomas, like he's a, he's a big one. He's someone from the, you know, from the, from the beginning. This is some sort of OG saint. So you're, in, and it's also really interesting that it's seven and a half churches that he founded. But so your interest is peaked here. And he goes on to say the following. 
Like every Sunday school child, she can rattle off their names. Kodungalur, Paravur, Niranam, Palayar, Nilakal, oh gosh, Kokamangalam, Kolam, and the tiny half church in Thiruvithamkode. Wow, so bad, I'm sorry. But seeing one for the first time leaves her breathless. So you understand that there is this Christian element that is really going to be important uh, in the novel. And if we look on page, oh my gosh, for those of you on the YouTube channel, here is one of my dogs. Um, she's not that old, but she looks so old. Uh, she's gone now. Legend has it that St. Thomas arrived in 52 AD, disembarking close to present-day Cochin. Cochin? Uh, I'm not sure how to pronounce that. He met a boy returning from the temple. Does your God hear your prayers, he asked. The boy said his God surely did. St. Thomas tossed water into the air and the droplets remained suspended. Can your dog, <laughs> wow, can your God do that? By such displays, whether magic or miracles, he converted a few Brahmin families to Christianity. Later, he was martyred in Madras. Those first converts, St. Thomas Christians, stayed true to the faith and did not marry outside their community. Over time, they grew, knitted together by their customs and their churches. Almost 2,000 years later, two descendants of those first Indian converts, a 12-year-old bride and a middle-aged widower, have married. So this is a perfect example of this really um, clear and, and concise and easy to understand and actually very colorful paragraph about St. Thomas. I mean, honestly, there's a little magic realism in there, but it's, it's a very accessible and very straightforward kind of history lesson that we are getting. And then it is so beautifully tied together with the story. You know, almost 2,000 years later, we have the marriage of these descendants of these people. It's really, um, this, is, this is really just an absolute masterclass in incorporating really, you know, kind of historical history, like really, uh, you know, kind of nuts and bolts basic history into a novel in a way that feels effortless and colorful and, and really additive in the very best of ways. In addition to the, uh, the religious history that we are treated to, we also get a really good sense of uh, understanding the British colony. In our young bride's time, the royal families of Trabancourt and Cochin, whose dynasties extend back to the Middle Ages, are under British rule as princely states. There are over 500 princely states under British yoke, half of India's land mass, most of them minor and inconsequential. The Maharajas of the larger princely states, or Salut states, wow, salute states, in exchange for keeping palaces, cars, and status, and for being allowed to govern simultaneously, the Maharajas pay a tithe to the British out of the taxes they collect from their subjects. We also have this very cool thing where he's sort of setting, um, you know, the, the commerce and the, um, you know, like when you think of history, it's not just the government. It's also sort of, you know, trade and, um, you know, different lands being known for their different uh, resources and whatnot. So on the bottom of page 13, he says, the spice craze swept over Europe like syphilis or the plague and by the same means, sailors and ships. 
I love that. It's so um, colorful and so tidy, this idea of having these parallels. And it's um, it's somewhat funny and kind of uh, unexpected. It's just really great prose. But this infection was salutary. Spices extended the life of food and whoever consumed it. I really love these asides giving us, again, a really cool sense of its history. The last thing I want to cover is the idea of the narrative stance in the novel. So we have talked about sense of place and language and history and how well incorporated all of those are into this massive tome that ends up being kind of a page turner for at least one friend of mine, um, but certainly a book that is resonating with a ton of people. Um, and part of the reason why I think it is done as well as it is and why it is so, uh, you know, sort of easy to read and gripping and, and really rich and resonant is this narrative voice. So um, it is told in a third person and we have the third person throughout, which is, um, it, it's a very sort of, uh, you know, it's a very versatile narrator, at least the way that this author is using it. So we do have um, third person, of course, simply being when you are telling the story as if the camera's pulled pretty far back. You know, he did this and she did that and the bridegroom did this and the bride did that. Um, so, so you're told it's not first person, it's not I did this and it's not you did it, um, it's he or she. So we have um, a very deft use though of a third person that can go from being a very kind of omniscient third person to then being a very close third and then moving back out into omniscience again. So it's the fact that it is so flexible is really I think one of the main reasons why this narrator is able to cover so much terrain. So. If we go way back to that very first page on page three, moving back uh, nine pages, 11 pages, something like that, don't make me do math, um, and we have this opening sentence. She is 12 years old and she will be married in the morning. So there we have um, you know, what is a pretty omniscient narrator. It's pulled back pretty far. I like the idea, it, he is not announcing her name, it's not, you know, Jane Doe will be married tomorrow because there's a there's a formality and a distance there. When you say she will be married tomorrow, th there's a sense that the reader already knows who you're talking about. It's a much more intimate way, which is kind of, um, you know, surprising on some level. It's like a little counterintuitive that the pronoun would be more intimate. But, you know, if you think about it a little bit, a pronoun means that you're already having a conversation about someone or you're already, you know, you already have knowledge about someone. So she is 12 years old and she will be married in the morning. There's both intimacy and omniscience there. This is someone who knows what's up. Um, and it's someone who is telling us very sort of clearly and declaratively what is happening here. Mother and daughter lie on the mat, their wet cheeks glued together. So this is also a really interesting um, narrative voice here because it's somebody, it's omniscient in the sense that like, this is someone who knows what's happening in their bedroom in the middle of the night. This is not some sidekick narrator who could never have this information. This is in fact an omniscient narrator, but it's also one who is witnessing and who is paying attention to and who is reporting real intimacy. So it's my favorite kind of omniscient narrator. It allows us into not the thoughts and feelings of the people, but really um, into some very intimate moments. Okay, so then we have a third person narrator uh, who gets even closer. So that same narrator uh, can be, can, can sort of look as if, it's not exactly that she's, that he, 
the narrator does seem very male, just because, I mean, I think that's kind of the given, which is really weird and kind of unfortunate. But I think omniscient narrators tend to feel like that kind of, um, you know, voice of authority that we often, I mean, this is such an interesting thing that's coming out of my mouth here. Um, I, I just don't, I'm not exactly sure why that is, but, you know, it has always been the case that, you know, if there's any, uh, like, gender given to a narrator, it does tend to be uh, masculine. So I think we hear this voice as, like, well, it's also a masculine author. It's a male author. And, and you know, authors of huge books like this have been male over millennia. There are many more, um, you know, male authors writing large books, uh, large family sagas than women, somewhat unfortunately. Okay, um, but we have um, this, this sort of narrator who can be far away, but we also have the narrator who can be not quite in the mind of the, the characters, but close to it. For example, she rises from the cane seat for the last time. Her father's chair and his teak platform bed inside are like a saint's relics for her. They retain the essence of him, if only she might take them to her new home. It's so beautiful, it's so compelling, it's really intimate, it's really emotional. So he's not saying you know, exactly what is happening in her mind. He's not saying she felt this or she felt that. But there is this sense, um, actually, he might be saying exactly that. Um, if only she might take them to her new home is so great because it is a thought that she might have. You know, you can imagine her saying, if only I might take them to my new home. Um, it's not, he's not quoting her, he's not citing her. But he's doing this very cool thing where we feel like we are having her language incorporated. It's very intimate without confusing us by having a narrator that is switching voices. So we have this kind of um, omniscient but, but sort of close intimate narrator in the beginning who gets even closer to this one character and then is able to sort of pull the lens way back again. So for example, on page six, the journey to the groom's church takes almost half a day. The boatman steers them down a maze of unfamiliar canals hung by flaming red hibiscus, the houses so close to the edge she could touch a squatting old woman winnowing rice with flicks of a flat basket. So you have here this, this omniscient narrator um, that, that has the camera has pulled way back and we are describing, you know, we are familiar with the people who are in this scene, but we're going way beyond that and including other people and certainly other geographies. So uh, again, this idea of the journey to the groom's church takes almost half a day. That's the kind of, um, uh, we, we have a sense of, of the narrator as pulling way back and giving us information that is known by many, many people, not just a few, and it, it's sort of almost common knowledge. So we spoke about the historical references and the really uh, excellent way that the author is able to sort of uh, interweave them into the story. And again, part of the reason why I think that works so well is because of the narrative stance. And there's a very good example on page 13. Again, we're still very early in the book. Uh, but when he's talking about the, the uh, British colonies and how there are a couple of big states, uh, these salute states, and then there are these smaller states, the, um, the princely states. So uh, we have this kind of um, very, uh, not academic sounding, but very kind of uh, the lens is pulled way back. It's very impersonal. It's very much about the history of the entire country and the British involvement in India in general. So... We um, had that last part of the sentence that reads, the Maharaja pays a tithe to the British out of the taxes they collect from their subjects. 
So that's the end of the paragraph. And then we move on to this sentence. Our bride in her village in the princely state of Travancore has never seen a British soldier or civil servant, a situation quite unlike that in the presidencies of Madras or Bombay, territories administered directly by the British and teeming with them. So one of the things that's so cool is that he is moving from this third person narration. It's definitely third person, but he has this quick kind of um, foray, this quick inclusion of this first person plural, which is we or our. So when he says our bride, he's doing this very cool thing where he's maintaining this third person, uh, you know, feel. And yet when he says our bride, he is aligning the reader with him. So you have this sense of our bride. It's also this really beautiful um, way of including the reader with the whole family. You know, it's kind of like our bride, meaning that you are now kind of part of this wedding ceremony. But this idea of our bride in her village in the princely state of Travancore is, is doing this very cool thing where you're learning about the difference between these princely states and the salute or salute states. So the author is then allowing us to get a little bit more specific. So we have this kind of broader sense and then we are focusing on this one part of the country and on this one state and in fact on this one village where our bride is going to settle. So you have also this very um, interesting sense of her never having seen um, a British soldier or a civil servant. So you get a sense of this as, as being, um, you know, not one of the kind of British colonial centers, which means that we are in for uh, more description because I think if you were thinking of, uh, you know, a British colonial center in India, you there would be more familiar elements to uh, the fellow ex-colonists here in the United States, meaning that a lot of the, the sort of British-isms that would be uh, sort of put on India in the parts that were more in these salute states. I mean, honestly, as I'm saying all of this, I'm feeling like I'm getting out a little bit on a limb, but I think it is logical to believe that if there is more British presence, then it would feel more familiar to a, uh, a former colony, as in the United States. So it's just a really beautiful way to give us perspective, and especially for um, you know American readers, th this sense of, of, of familiarity and, and also this idea, not just familiarity in terms of the colonial overlay, but familiarity uh, in terms of like understanding where this young bride is. And now that he has called us our bride, now that we are part of the family, we can really align ourselves with her in a way that's really uh, excellent. And I do think all of that has to do with this incredibly flexible, uh, incredibly nimble narrator who is always very comfortably in the third person, but but is doing a lot of, um, of movement, a lot of sort of panning, not panning, of zooming in and zooming out in a way that allows us a, a much better sense of what is going on. So I'm going to leave it at that. Thank you so much for listening. I hope um, that you, like my friend, are about to dive into the book or that you have been devouring it the way that she has. And I hope that, um, you know, this very brief introduction uh, to this very large and very compelling book has been helpful. So just looking at the language, looking at the sense of place, looking at the narration and looking at the use of history, those are all sort of footholds. And I think if you have a sense of those and a sense of the mastery with which this author, whose name I still don't know how to pronounce, um, if you have a sense of his mastery and a sense of the way that it is functioning, then you'll understand a bit more why this book is so compelling and resonant for so many people. And hopefully you'll have a little better sense of why it is, uh, you know, resonant for you.
So, uh, you know, just go ahead and whip through this one and then get yourself back to the Fox page and find something else uh, to dig into. Thanks so much for listening. Happy reading.